This is the official Sasta podcast with your host Harry Stebbings, found on Snapchat at hstebbings with two b's, and on mojitovc.com, writing some hopefully more thoughtful and academic pieces. You can also follow the main man behind it all, Jason Lemkin at Sasta on at Jason LK on Twitter. However, for the show today, and if you follow Jason's work and writings before, you will have heard him discuss the importance of demand gen in today's SaaS world. With that in mind, I'm delighted to welcome a leader in the demand gen space to the show today. So, joining me in the hot seat, I'm thrilled to welcome Luke Rettereth, Director of Demand Generation at Duo Security, the most loved company in security. They have the backing of some of the best investors in the business, including Benchmark, Redpoint, Google Ventures, and True Ventures, just to name a few. As for Luke, his role is to develop, execute, and manage demand generation programs, assessing the effectiveness of all marketing programs, as well as defining goals, metrics, and ROIs for the differing programs. I'd also like to say a huge thanks to Jason Lemkin for the intro to Luke today, without which the show would not have been possible. However, before we dive into the show today, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast, typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a perfect investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search because now SASTA podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash SASTA with the coupon code SASTA podcast. That's algolia.com forward slash SASTA. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Luke, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Huge thanks to Jason for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Luke. Thanks for having me. Now, I'd love to get started today by hearing a little bit about you and how you made your entry into the wonderful world of SaaS and SaaS marketing. Yeah, so it's kind of a, a roundabout story. Um, so I was I was an English major in college, graduated early 2000s, got my first job at an accounting and consulting firm in Boston, and they just kind of handed me the website and said, uh, you're the young person on the team, you get to manage this took some Dreamweaver courses, learned how to do HTML, and, and realized I was really interested in search specifically at the time. So I left there and went to a, a search marketing agency in the Boston area. And it was just a fortuitous time to be there. And it was a great little agency. I got to work with a number of really interesting startups out in that space. So Constant Contact, Zipcar, Carbonite, Equalogic, and, and some that you know people aren't going to be familiar with because they didn't have great exits. That, that was my first taste, my first foray, if you will, into SaaS and just tech in general. I did that for a number of years. I left. I moved into a role on the CPG side, thinking big budgets, big brands, this could be really interesting. And I, I quickly realized it wasn't for me. What, why, was, why was that? Just when you're when you're selling cereal or toilet paper or something where you have you know 95% of US households are purchasing a product in your category, the amount of impact that you can have on the business is so small on the marketing side, especially for someone like me who is coming more from a digital marketing perspective. It just wasn't satisfying for me. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so so I left I left that role and I moved. I was in Michigan at the time and looking for someone that might be doing something interesting in the SaaS space. I found Duo Security in Ann Arbor, Michigan, two founders from the University of Michigan, about 50 people at the time. That was about three years ago. And reached 
out to them. They had a role open, moved real fast, got in, and uh, it's it's been a ride ever since. And I want to start today with, I just got off the phone with Jason Lemkin, and he was telling me about the importance of establishing demand gen within your organization, and demand gen in general within SaaS organizations. So I want to start today with how to hire demand gen leads to start with, and how can early stage startups really vet these candidates at the very early stages? Sure. Great question. So I think you know, there's some table stakes. You want to look for someone who has some background as a direct response marketer. A lot of times, depending on your business, that's that's going to be someone who has experience on the digital side and especially search in particular. Obviously, I'm a little biased because that's uh, where I spent about 10 years. Uh, but I think that people with good, solid search marketing backgrounds lend themselves well to the role of the demand gen position because they're very analytical. They're used to working in spreadsheets. They're used to direct response metrics, uh, cost per leads, all those kinds of things that are going to be important. And then once you get past those, the, the basic requirements for the role, I think there's three things that I like to do when when we're looking to hire someone on the demand gen side um, that I think could be applicable in, in any organization. So number one is leading up to the interview with the candidate. You ask them to actually write write three ads for Google AdWords for you. And th- essentially, that's all the context you give them. And, th- and then you can see what they come back with. And there's going to be some really basic things there. So you can just simply look at what are what are the character counts on those ads? Do they at least understand the basics of how AdWords works and that you've got to be able to construct it within a certain parameter? I think there's some advanced things you can actually look for. So if they give you um, tracking parameters for your destination URL, it shows that they actually are digging into what you're currently doing. They understand the tracking systems they're using. They might even have identified that you're using some special nuanced parameters for your Salesforce or Marketo or HubSpot implementation. So that's a good sign mm-hmm. as well. I think, and then just looking at the ads themselves. So do they make sense? And when they come in for the interview, probe on reasoning for you know why they did what they did. You can ask them which they think is going to perform best and and why. So that that's one thing. And I think um, you know search is really important. And I think that that project teases out a lot of different qualities in a candidate. The second thing I like to do with a candidate in person, assuming they're coming from a similar organization, is actually book a room with a whiteboard and have them draw their sales and marketing funnel out and and have them just walk me through it. And and when you do that, you know everyone's going to be able to draw the basic MQL to uh, SAL to SQL to SAO to closed one. But really digging in and seeing how well they understand the various parts of that funnel. How well do they understand conversion rates from one step to the next? How well do they understand how long it takes to move a lead from from one status to the next status? If do they understand nuances by the the size of the organization, the size of the deal, the the role of that person maybe who came in initially, at what point might other people from the organization start to come in for a given organization? You can really get a sense of just how well they understand the business. And and that's obviously going to be very important on the demand gen side as well. And then thirdly, I actually will just uh, either have Google Sheets or or an Excel file open. And I have a a scrub data set from our actual Salesforce uh, instance. And maybe it has 5,000 rows of data in it. And all the necessary columns, you need to do some analysis. And I'll just come up with some different scenarios. I'll ask them questions. I'll give them that data in the computer. And and while we sit there, actually just say, you know, can you explain to me what is most effective right now at driving leads in, you know, organizations of 51 to 500 employees? And they can ask questions. They can, it's a back and forth. I don't expect them to just sit in a silo and and figure that out. But that gives me the ability to see, number one, how are they in, in Excel or Google Sheets? So everybody says that they understand it, but it's amazing how many people um, free 
freeze up and aren't able to do some pretty basic pivot tables and analysis like VLOOKUPs and different things like that. And also just really highlights their ability to look at a data set, probe it for, you know, understand the question, uh, dig into that data and come back with some answers for us. I do have to ask, with three such practical tests, is there an element ever where you appreciate that it may be a recent graduate's come to you straight out of university and they've got the hustle, they've got the passion and they've got the determination, but they maybe don't have the practical skill set yet that a ex-Salesforce might have. How do you kind of balance between the two of experience but the hugely passionate graduate? Yeah, so you know, thus far, so we have a, a team on the management side of three and up until a year ago, it was just myself. So it was one of us. Um, so we have been hiring people that are coming in with experience. Um, I think if we were looking for candidates without that kind of experience, certainly we're going to look for, you, you've got to be able to do one of those things pretty well. I think being able to write a few good ads for paid search, even if you don't have experience in that, they should be able to do some research, uh, look at Google AdWords and, and figure out what they might need to do there. Being able to analyze some data in Excel, that might be a little more hit or miss. And certainly being able to funnel, draw out their, their funnel is going to be um, a, a tough task for them. But I think what you want to look for is just their ability to to take a, a problem, like write me three ads. What do they come back with? What is their reasoning on it? They're not going to understand all of the details and the nuances of paid search potentially, but do they approach the problem right? Do they ask the right kind of questions? Absolutely. I, I am intrigued though, because once we've hired this team using those three practical skill tests uh, and with the assessment criteria suggested, talk to me, how do we get this team jump started? Where do we push their focus towards and really get some kind of concentrated effort going? Sure. So I think whether you've got a team or whether you have just hired a, one person or even if you've just taken a job um, and you're the first person in a demand role in, in an organization, I think there's a few things that, that I would do first. So so number one is do less. And, and what that means is I, I see a lot of people trying to do a lot of things. They approach just really marketing in general as if it is just it's a recipe and it's a, a combination of all these different ingredients and we just need to kind of sprinkle ourselves across all these different things and, and so we're going to hit on something and, and it'll be okay. I think number one is just do less. So paid search and SEO, unless you're in a completely new marketplace and you're trying to create a market, those are going to be your two surest bets. So so focus on those two things first and don't get too distracted by all of the other things you could be doing. Another thing that I think is, is really important is just getting your tracking right. So whether you're using Salesforce or Marketo or HubSpot or Eloqua or any of these systems, making sure that it is engineered in a way that uh, you have confidence in the data that you're getting out of those and that you can draw the conclusions that you'll need to draw. That That's really going to be the foundation of every decision you make going forward. It's going to be vital for accurate forecasting. And if you don't have tracking right, it is, it, it'll be the biggest roadblock that you have in building a hyper-growth demand gen program. And I think the last thing that I would recommend would just be really clear on your objectives. So that could be as simple as just having a very clear definition of what is a marketing qualified lead that you've got sales and marketing alignment on, but also just, you know, what are we trying to achieve? There's going to be some things that aren't necessarily best measured by the volume of MQLs that are being driven. So if you're doing events or trade shows or those kinds of activities, pipeline being generated, there might be some different metrics that you want to use to measure those, but, but really being clear on what 
the objectives are. Because what I've seen is that essentially ambiguity really creates uncertainty and a lack of focus on the marketing side. And then it creates a lack of confidence on the sales side. And you start to see those relationships erode. And and so you you really want to be clear on what on the marketing and demand gen side specifically, what are we trying to achieve? And do we have everything in place to track that? And and are we confident that if we hit that, that we're going to deliver the, the kind of value that our sales team needs? You said about ambiguity there, uh, potentially creating confusion. I completely agree. I do, you know, that straight away takes my mind to more traditional forms of marketing in terms of billboards and, and TV when you really scale up, where there's obviously no inherent ROI that you can track. So I'm intrigued to hear how you view marketing with more meta brand continuation and uh, awareness where there's not so much tracking. How do you view that brand awareness where there might be no measurable ROI? Is it worth it? It's going to be worth it depending on what type of uh, market you're trying to penetrate and, and at what stage you are at as an organization. So for for us at Duo, at the, the place that we're at, we're not really doing much on the branding and awareness side. We're still you know just trying to feed our sales team with, with leads. That being said, I think there are ways that when we are talking about running branding and awareness programs that we go into them with a higher level of confidence, even if we know that we're not going to be able to track directly to the volume of leads being driven. So, you know, number one is, do you have high level of confidence in the ability to target the right type of people? So I will be much more interested in running branding and awareness programs and allotting some of our media budget towards them. If we have some high level of confidence that we are reaching the the people that we want to reach, that might be based on roles. It might be based on organization size. It it could even just be regionally. We could say we've got a a sales territory over here and we we need some more support. And so if we're going to start dabbling in some branding and awareness programs, let's experiment with it over here where, you know, we can essentially then, you know, through those efforts, potentially prop up that sales territory a little more in that experiment as well. I I, I do want to touch on it because now we've assembled the team, we've given them a focus. and, And with that, you hope to see some results. And at Duo, you've now uh, supported 3x revenue growth three years in a row. So I want to hear about this and hear if there's been any real takeaways from seeing this immense growth at Duo over the last few years. Yeah, so I would say first and foremost to acknowledge that you need a great sales team. We have, I, I think, some of the best people on, on the sales side in, in the industry. So it, all the way up to the top, our sales leadership team is very strong. Is there anything you do at Duo to create harmony and a good relationship between the marketing and the sales team where there's traditionally a little bit of friction? Yeah, we don't have you know hard set SLAs in place. We don't have weekly sales and marketing meetings where we get together and, and talk about specific things that are going on. We're very much, we're more dynamic than that. There are people on the sales side that I meet with regularly, but nothing super formal like that. I think what we do well though is you know on, on our sales side, Jim Sib is our, our SVP of worldwide sales. He, he's always pushing the notion of assume positive intent. So that's something that I think we all try to do. And then I think on the marketing side specifically, we try to be as transparent as possible. So every month I'm sending an update to our sales leadership team of here's how we did for the month. Here is how we performed against targets for all of your various pieces of the business. Here are new things we tried. Sometimes they fail. Sometimes they're successful. We're, we're up front with all of that. Here's what's coming up in the next month. So that level of transparency just helps to build confidence that they know that if, if we're missing somewhere, we're going to be open about it. And if we're not missing somewhere and we see opportunity, we're going to share that news as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm sorry I interrupted you that. Second, second, you said there was a second. So I think um, that's just a, that's a given. So you need a great sales team. You 
need a great product. If I look at the marketing side, what we've done to just support the, the kind of growth that Duo has seen, specifically in investment in marketing operations has been a big mover for us. So we tried a number of different iterations of how we manage our, our marketing operations. So um, we use Marketo. That has included just myself running our Marketo instance. Um, we've had an outside consultant running it. Both of those were okay. Neither of them were great. When we actually really invested in bringing in some great marketing ops talent, that freed everyone else up and then also just leveled us up as a, a marketing organization, really across the organization in general. So investing in marketing operations is definitely important. I think the second one, I've talked about it a lot already, but getting search right um, and then investing as much as you can there is really important. So how, how, for- how long should you iterate with search and really try and optimize what you're doing? We haven't stopped. So I would say if we, if we split apart the two different forms of search, you have paid search and then you have organic search. Organic search is definitely a long-term investment and that's going to be the hardest thing to do well. There are a lot of charlatans and snake oil salesmen in the SEO world. So understanding the basics, making sure you have good content on a site uh, and making that investment early is going to be important. And then on the paid search side, uh, where you can really start to pull levers deliberately, again, you start small there, start very focused, start narrow, figure out what works. And then essentially, you know, we're, we're at a place where we find campaigns, keywords, ads, uh, and the right combination of those that work well from us, work well for us from an ROI perspective. And we try to figure out then how much can I spend there? So if, if I know that I put a dollar into paid search and I'm getting three, four, five dollars in pipeline back from that within a couple weeks, that's a really easy conversation for me to have with people who hold the purse strings to say, if you give me X amount of dollars, I'm going to give you Y amount back. And so we've done a really good job of that and significantly expanded our advertising budgets as a result. I think another thing that's really important for uh, a marketing organization in general is creating a, a culture of accountability and the notion that not sure doesn't fly. So everything we do, we should, as much as we can, we should be prepared to end that thing with a yes or no outcome. We want to be confident that going into any experiment, any new project, any new campaign, that we understand, again, what are the objectives of that and that everyone's on board. And when we have done that, when we've completed it or when we've you know exhausted our, our budget for it, whatever it might be, that we end that with a really clear yes or no outcome. And that's not just on the demand gen side. We, we see that on the creative side. We see that uh, with our field marketing team as well. I, I do want to dive into a quick fire round with you now, though. So I say a short statement, and then you give me your immediate thoughts. About 60 seconds. How does that sound? Sounds great. So let's start with, uh, I know this one's an interesting one for you, uh, your thoughts on account-based marketing or ABM. So ABM is super popular right now. A lot of vendors coming out, a lot of people talking about it. I think that it is overhyped. I think it makes sense for some organizations. If you're selling an enterprise, ABM is likely a, a great approach for you. Uh, for people who are selling to a, a broader variety of organizations or sm- selling to smaller organizations, you're not going to be able to gain the kind of scale or the kind of volume that you need by being so narrowly focused. And I think the other thing that it really misses is that if there is an existing marketplace, there's an existing amount of people who are ready to purchase a product at a certain time. And if, if you're relying on ABM, you're reaching out to people, you're hoping to hit them at the right point in that cycle, but it's not going to happen. So you're going to have longer deals, uh, longer conversations. I really try to err on the side of, um, we want to reach all of the hand raisers first. And that's, again, goes back to the focus on search and, and some of those direct response kind of efforts, because those are going to be the faster deals and we can really 
build the foundation of our program off of those. Okay, consequent question from that. What ticket price means it's not worthwhile to do ABM? Do you know what I mean? So there could be a state where 15k per ticket is worth it to do ABM, but five isn't. Is there a, is there an actual ticket size that you think suddenly becomes not worth it to do ABM? Our approach thus far has really been we use ABM for our on our enterprise side and a lot of it is essentially run out of our sales organization. So our account development reps sit on the sales side of things and we have a group of them that are allotted to outbound efforts and, and they're essentially running their own little ABM programs and so they're targeting the kind of customers and deals that are going to be six-figure deals minimum basically and the, the volume of those deals is low, the value of them is high but from a demand gen perspective it's just not scalable for us to spend the amount of time necessary to bring in the small number of deals at those high ACV values. Absolutely. No, that makes sense. And then what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your career in in SaaS marketing and demand generation? Honestly, the thing that held me back the most when I first started would be uh, just a lack of knowledge of Salesforce and just trying to fight my way around it. Almost everybody is using Salesforce and you know the demand inside is very data focused. And so having a really strong understanding of how Salesforce works, how it doesn't work, being able to manipulate data, export data, and run your own analysis. I spent probably the first six months at Duo just giving up on our Salesforce instance and trying to build outside of it. It wasn't until I really got invested on getting things fixed, getting things up and running the way that I felt they needed to be, that things started moving in the right direction. Absolutely. Invest in Salesforce. I've I've slowly learned that having just joined an organization. Uh, But then talk to me. Final question, quick fire question. Importance of content marketing. What are the thoughts? We have a great content marketing program. We have, uh, we actually on our creative team have a, a woman who is previously a, in a more of a journalist role and she produces really strong content. She's not a marketing person. She's definitely not a demand gen or salesperson. So, so she kind of lives in her own bubble and creates great content. But one of the things that we have found is that great content in and of itself isn't going to get you far. And it, it's certainly not going to give you the kind of hyper growth that we need to see, you know, it, at duo. And so we need to figure out the, the level of support that is required from an advertising perspective. We need to figure out who the target market is, all these different kinds of factors in order to make our content marketing effective. If we put out two different eBooks, both of you know similar quality, and we try to let one run essentially virally and another run with a more concerted effort around supporting webinars, advertising support, various things like that, the multiplier on that second scenario is easily 10 to 15x in terms of the amount of people that are downloading that content. Wow, that's incredible. 10 to 15x a lot. That's more than I thought it would be. Um, but I do want to then finish today with the future in mind and looking ahead. And don't worry, we're not on 60 seconds now. But with the future ahead, uh, how do you plan and forecast? And how do you approach, say, the topic of MQLs? So the, the basic approach that most people take is going to be they, they look at what is our sales target for the year? And then let's just move backwards and figure out how many MQLs do we need at the top to support that? And we do that. We, we take that approach. But I think what's missing there then on the demand gen side is we need to really understand what we think we're going to be able to drive and where that's going to come from. And so we also take the approach of saying, um, essentially, we break our inbound leads into three different groups. So we look at, we've got a base of leads.
leads that are going to come in from from organic search, direct traffic, referrals, things that are largely out of our direct control over the course of the year. So carve all of those out and I say, what is that going to look like for the next 12 months? And then I take a second group and that's going to be our advertising generated activity. That's largely a function of budget, but then we also have to make some assumptions in terms of diminishing return as budgets go up. And then we have to be able to cut that down to the market segment, industry, sometimes geographic level as well. And so so that's the second group. And then the third group would be more of our, our temporal activities. So things where we are planning for a, a one-off activity, such as an event or trade show, or even a webinar. And how many of those are we going to do? How many do we think are going to come up over the course of the year that we aren't planning for now? And then what do those look like in terms of lead makeup as well? Once we have those three different things figured out, we can bring them together and look at the course of the year. We can start to make adjustments actually to our budget or our, our media spend to support months or quarters where we think that we need to bring in more based on lack of external activities. And we can also see what the delta is between here's what we think is realistic given what we've seen historically, what our budget is, and what our plan for events and trade shows and webinars is. And here's what we think we need to do in order to hit those sales targets. And then, you know, working on this with, with our counterparts on the sales side to make sure that they have confidence that, you know, we're close enough or that if, if we hit these, that, that they feel like they're going to be able to turn that into the business that they need to. Absolutely. No, I, and then I want to finish, though, discussing, you said about budgets there and spending. When when we're talking in the literal sense, how do you literally decide where to spend your money on on channels and how to optimize that money to go the furthest? Again, I you know, I've, I've said it a few times, but I, I definitely say start with search uh, and, and really start with Google AdWords. So figure out what's working for you on the paid search side and then maximize your spend there. Don't worry about spending dollars anywhere else until you feel like you're hitting budget caps. Um, you know, you're essentially hitting a ceiling on the paid search side. That's almost always going to be your most effective channel to put money in in digital. And, and once you have done that, then you can start to expand. So you can look at play advertising via Google, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn. So you know, we're we're a B two B product. We're selling into security people. You would think that some of these social networks aren't going to be effective, but there actually are ways to make them effective. On Facebook specifically, we've used remarketing effectively. And then LinkedIn, what we found there was we'd run some tests previously, uh, maybe a year or two back, and, and they really didn't do anything for us. But the, the issue was we didn't have the amount of budget necessary to really assess whether they were good or not. The, just the volume of leads that we got in, given the budget that we had to experiment with, didn't provide us with a large enough sample size. And so as our budgets grew because we were effective elsewhere, we were able to invest more. And we've actually seen in the last year here, LinkedIn is our, our second most effective channel for us from a paid perspective, right behind paid search. And, and that's one that uh, a year and a half ago, I would have said isn't very effective for us, but it was simply that we just couldn't invest enough to give it the kind of roadway that it needed. I mean, now that we can, it has proven itself to be very effective. So so that's you know our, our basic approach. Start simple, start with the channels that are, are effective. You know, if you put in a dollar and you get a dollar twenty back on one and eighty cents back on the other, max out on that one that you're getting a dollar twenty back on until it's not as effective. Then go back to that eighty cent one and figure out what you can do differently differently there. It's it's shown that there is something, there's some volume, there's some traction there. And so you can go back and figure out what you can do to optimize that to bring it up, but really just focus on doing less things and investing in them until the the return isn't there and then moving on to something else. Well, Luke, you said about the 3x revenue growth three years in a row. I look immensely forward to seeing that continue next year. 
but thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you. What a fantastic and tactical episode that was with Luke at Duo, and a huge thanks to him for sharing his tactics and strategies in demand gen. I also want to say a huge thanks to Jason Lemkin for the introduction to Luke today, without which the show would not have been possible. And if you love the show and would like to see behind the scenes from us, you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings. You can also read some hopefully more thoughtful and academic pieces on mojitovc.com. I'd absolutely love to hear your thoughts on that. Or you can follow the main man, Jason Lemkin, on Twitter at JasonLK. That really is a must. But before we leave you today, do not forget to check out Algolia. Now, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast, typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences by owning the entire stack from engine to server. Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. And for smaller SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers, and you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search, because now SASTA podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash SASTA with the coupon code SASTA podcast. As always, we so appreciate all your support, and I cannot wait to bring you our 100th episode on the official SASTA podcast, where we will be deep diving into the incredible story of Box with Aaron Levy.